Well, today we actually launch our uh, summer series entitled Replenish, and uh, it goes after the idea that every one of us at some point in our lives feels drained. We feel depleted. In the worst cases, uh, sometimes we feel burnt out. Uh, parents, you know what I'm talking about. It has been a full year of driving kids to hockey, soccer, dance, drama, productions, music lessons, etc. Kids are winding down at school. They're tired. And uh, being fired up to learn brand new things uh, at this point in June isn't usually at the top of kids' lists. Teachers are tired, kids are cranky, and parents need a break. But it's not just kids at school, though, is it? It's our work environments as well. People long for a vacation to get away from the stresses and the responsibilities of work. But here's a deeper question. Is it all just about having a break? Does having some time off solve the deeper need of our souls to be refilled and replenished? And I was thinking there's no better scene in a movie that popped into my mind uh, better than the scene from City Slickers. And uh, this kind of frames up the question really well. If you've never seen it, it's a bunch of guys in their late 30s. Uh, their lives are falling apart, so they decide they're going to go on a, on a cattle drive. And uh, they're just going to get away from it all. And they meet Curly, uh, the crusty old cowboy. So we're going to turn down the lights and he can take a look. Cowboy leads a different kind of life than they were cowboys. They're a dying breed. Still means something to me, though couple of days, we'll move this herd across the river, driving through the valley. Oh, <laughs> there's nothing like bringing in a herd. See, now that's great. Your life makes sense to you. <laughs> I'm, I'm just saying. Uh, how old are you? 38. 39. Yeah. You all come up here about the same age, same problems. Spend about 50 weeks a year getting knots in your rope and then... And then you think two weeks up here will time for you. None of you get it. What a great line. You spend 50 weeks a year tying knots in your rope, and you think two weeks up here will untie them all for you. And you know, often when we get depleted, when we get drained, burnt out in life, it's a deeper problem just two weeks of vacation can fix. Our souls truly need replenishing. So here at Ocean View, we turn to the Bible, God's Word, for direction and inspiration. And so when faced with a question like this, we're naturally going to go and look and find a story of someone in the Bible who experienced this exact thing, exhaustion and burnout. Turns out that it was the prophet Elijah, one of God's mightiest, bravest, and greatest prophets. So what's his story? How did a guy go from the mountaintop, and we'll discover in a minute, literally the mountaintop, how did he go from that to a total crash into depression, exhaustion, and burnout? Those are great questions. We're going to discover that. We're going to be in the Bible in 1 Kings chapter 18. If you have a print Bible, you can open that or an app on your smartphone, and the uh, verses will also be on the screen behind me. So what you need to know to kind of set this story up is that at this point, the nation of Israel was divided into two related but separate kingdoms. Israel was in the north and Judah was in the south. 
And our story today centers on Israel, the northern kingdom. And they were often, they had a repeated history of doing the absolute opposite of what God wanted for them. They were usually tempted to go run after the gods of other nations and worship idols. Uh, They engaged in all kinds of awful behavior. They oppressed the poor. They forgot about the most vulnerable people in their society, like widows. Uh, And they were just uh, horribly uh, oppressive to foreigners in their midst. Along with that, they cheated, lied, stole, and committed adultery. So, Elijah, the prophet, he had a pretty big job to do, trying to call his nation back to God, back to living in God-honoring ways. Now, at this point in Israel's history, it had its worst king, King Ahab. And he had an unbelievable wife named Jezebel. And she was a downright nasty piece of business. Uh, She wasn't just kind of a lapsed Jewish believer who had kind of stopped going to the temple she actively supported the flourishing of the pagan worship of the god Baal. Now, worship of the god Baal wasn't a pretty thing, and in its extreme expressions even involved horrific things like child sacrifice. So you can see why Elijah and God were opposed to that. And that's just the beginning of what she did. At one point, there is a uh, man who has a beautiful vineyard, a beautiful plot of land, and the king says, you know, I think I might like that land. And Jezebel says, well, just kill him and take it. And that's what he did. And then at one point, she's getting flack from God's prophets, so she just decides to put them to death. So that's pretty much why nobody ever names their daughter Jezebel today. And so in judgment, God finally says enough and he sends a drought on the land to try to get the people to wake up and turn back to him. And then he sends Elijah the prophet to confront Ahab the king. And Elijah meets the king, and he essentially says, all right, enough of this nonsense. It is time for a showdown. It's a showdown between me, I'm the only prophet of God left, and your 450 prophets of the god Baal. And so he says, let's set up a showdown for the top of Mount Carmel. And then each side gets a turn calling out to their God. We'll we'll make huge piles of wood for an altar, for a sacrifice. We'll have a a bull cut up on each one. And we'll call out to our gods. And whoever answers by fire, that is the true God. So here's the actual words from the Bible. 1 Kings 18, beginning in verse 18. I have not made trouble for Israel, Elijah replied, but you and your father's family have. You have abandoned the Lord's commands, have followed the Baals. Now summon the people from all over Israel to meet me on Mount Carmel and bring the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab sent word throughout all Israel and assembled the prophets on Mount Carmel. Elijah went before the people and said, How long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. But the people said nothing. Then Elijah said to them, I am the only one of the Lord's prophets left. But Baal has 450 prophets. Get two bulls for us. Let Baal's prophets choose one for themselves 
Let them cut it into pieces, put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. I will prepare the other bowl, put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. Then you call on the name of your God, and I will call on the name of the Lord. The God who answers by fire, he is God. Then all the people said, what you say is good. So the contest is set up. And out of a sense of fair play, Elijah says, all right, prophets of Baal, you guys get to go first. Now, you need to know that Baal was supposedly the storm god. He had control of things like thunder and lightning and storms. So it should have been no problem for him to send down a little bit of lightning and start that uh, altar on fire. So these 450 prophets of Baal, they go for it all day long. They are they're dancing and they're prophesying and they're calling out to their god, Baal. And Elijah kind of watches for a while, a couple hours, and then he, he can't help himself. He starts making little comments. He says, maybe you guys should shout louder. Maybe Baal's asleep. Maybe you need to kind of wake him up. They said, maybe he's preoccupied. Maybe he's doing something else. He said, or maybe he's away on a trip. And that just kind of sends him into a frenzy, and they're desperate, and they, they start cutting themselves, and it's just a big gong show. Finally, Elijah steps up and he says, all right, you've had your chance. It's now like five o'clock in the evening. You're done. It's my chance. Step aside. So then he goes, just so you're absolutely clear about this, of the miracle God's about to do, he says, I want massive amounts of water poured over the bowl and the wood three times. And so they bring this water and they douse the altar three separate times. And then he prays. And what a prayer it is. Listen to this prayer. The time of sacrifice, the prophet Elijah stepped forward and prayed, Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant. And I have done all these things at your command. Answer me, Lord, answer me. So these people will know that you, Lord, are God and that you are turning the hearts back again. Then the fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, the soil, and also licked up the water in the trench. When all the people saw this, they fell prostrate and cried, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. What an amazing scene. God had used Elijah to help turn the hearts of the nation back to the one true God. Now, that would be more than enough for a day's work. You can imagine how emotionally exhausted Elijah would be. But he gets down on his knees and he prays seven separate times for God to end the drought, to send rain. And all of a sudden, he sees clouds forming and he knows God's about to answer this prayer. And he, he sends a messenger to actually warn the king. He says, Ahab, It is about to rain like you've never seen. This is going to be an unbelievable rain. And so then the rain comes. And God actually grants Elijah supernatural strength. And he runs about, scholars think it's about two-thirds of a marathon. It'd be over 17 miles down the mountain from Mount Carmel to the town of Jezreel. Now that day took some serious courage, some serious faith, some leadership, 
and not to mention a 17-mile run at top speed. That's a pretty full day. You can imagine what happens next. Total and complete exhaustion, and unfortunately for Elijah, some depression and some burnout as well. Let's read about it. 1 Kings 19, 1-5. Now Ahab told Jezebel everything Elijah had done how he'd killed all the prophets with the sword. So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah to say, May the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like that of one of them. Kind of an old-fashioned way of saying, I'm going to kill you. Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. Then he came to Beersheba in Judah. He left his servant there while he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness. He came to a broom bush, sat down under it, and prayed that he might die. I have had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. I'm no better than my ancestors. Then he lay down under the bush and fell asleep. It's a pretty fascinating scene. Jezebel, the wicked queen, threatens Elijah's life, and he runs for it. Now, it's interesting. All, if you go back and read the preceding chapters, Elijah was amazing at always waiting for God to tell him what to do next, what his next step was. But in this case, he doesn't consult God. He just comes up with this plan on his own. And he decides, I'm going to get as far away as I can from the wicked witch of the east, and I'm going to flee from the, the top of Israel all the way down to that southern kingdom of Judah, and Beersheba was right at the bottom. So he's getting as far away as possible. Now, Elijah has always been the absolute model of a person of faith, but this is his breaking point. He's exhausted both mentally and physically. And it's interesting, for the very first time, he doesn't call it to God. He doesn't say, God, I'm done, I'm exhausted, fill me back up, replenish me. He just comes up with this plan on his own. So in burnout and frustration, he marches, out into the wilderness, finds a broom tree, says, God, I am done. Just kill me. Just take my life. Wow, that's quite a place to end up. And I don't know, maybe you're here this morning and you're like, you know what? That's pretty close to how I feel. Or maybe you see yourself on the way heading there. And that's not a fun place to be. And just like Elijah, you and I do exactly the same thing. We lose perspective on God and his love and care that he offers us. It's amazing, though, that God isn't harsh with Elijah, but instead offers some grace and love. Look what happens. This is what God does. Picking it up in verse 5, he says, All at once an angel touched him and said, Get up and eat. He looked around, and there by his head was some bread baked over hot coals in a jar of water. He ate and drank and then lay down again. The angel of the Lord came back a second time and touched him and said, Get up and eat, for the journey is too much for you. So he got up and ate and drank. And as I looked at those verses, it struck me that there's actually five things that God does for Elijah in that short verses. Number one, he lets him sleep. And if you've ever been in the place of burnout and exhaustion, that's probably what you need the most. Just let him sleep. Number two, sends an angel to provide food and water. Then he lets him sleep again. 
And then fourthly, when he sends the angel of the Lord, game, food and water are brought from him. And then the angel of the Lord offers a really kind word. He says, get up and eat, for the journey is too much for you. And I wanted to stop and just pull that verse apart a little bit because you and I often come with a wrong image of God. We think of God as angry, that he's displeased, he's got a big stick ready to whack us back into line, or that he's sort of an unrelenting taskmaster, and he's always asking more of us. And that's not true. Look at the care that he provided for Elijah. There's a beautiful verse a few books later in the first half of the Bible. It's Zephaniah 3.17, another prophet of God. And, and he speaks this, this verse over the entire nation. It's so beautiful, so well said. Zephaniah 3.17, The Lord your God is with you, the mighty warrior who saves. He will take great delight in you. In his love, he will no longer rebuke you, will rejoice over you with singing. Pretty amazing verse. You know, over and over and over in the Bible, God tells us that if you're going to serve him, you need to do it in his strength, the strength he provides. We aren't meant to get burnt out trying to do it all on our own. You know, that's actually one of the really unique things that sets the Christian faith apart from any other world religion or religious movement. Everybody else says, here's the expected goal. Now try really, really hard to meet it. Think about the religion of Islam. It requires a faithful Muslim to do the five pillars. Here they are. Shahada, sincerely reciting, reciting the Muslim profession of faith. Salat, performing ritual prayers in the proper way five times each day. Zakat. Uh, praying in alms or charity, giving a tax to benefit the poor and the needy. The sum, uh, fasting during the month of Ramadan. And at least once a faithful Muslim is called to do a hajj, a privileged pilgrimage to Mecca. That is what a Muslim person is expected to do in their own strength. There are a list of 15 requirements if you are a Mormon and you want to have full acceptance into a Mormon temple. And in contrast to those kinds of ideas where it's human beings trying really hard to measure up and make it, Jesus comes along and says, it's not about you trying really hard on your own. It's about you continually tapping into my strength and my life so that you're replenished each, every, each and every day. Don't believe me? Listen to these amazing words of John 15, verse 5. Jesus said, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me, and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. The Apostle Paul lived that out. And in Colossians 1.29, he says this in fulfillment of Jesus' words. He says, to this end, I strenuously contend with all the energy Christ so powerfully works in me and that is god's program to prevent us getting to the same place as elijah did lying under a tree in the hot sun just hoping we're gonna die so where are you at today maybe you're exhausted you're frustrated you're just done 
but you've never really contemplated the idea that God would care for you, that he would show his love for you. Maybe in walking around with the image of God is demanding, harsh, and angry. But I'm here to tell you this morning, the same God who brought food and water to Elijah is the same God who loves us. Maybe you aren't fully exhausted. Maybe you're not all the way down the road to burnout. But you know, you can see the signs in your life that you're starting to get there. You know all that hard work to earn a paycheck, keep your family functioning. Maybe you got some relational breakdown in your life. All of it feels like this is just too much. It's not sustainable. That is where the promises of Jesus and the experience of the Apostle Paul come in. Tap into the vine. Get your strength and source from him. Labor with all of Christ's energy that works so powerfully inside of you. Now, maybe you're here this morning and you're at the very beginning end of the journey. You're just kind of wondering, man, is any of this true? Is, is Jesus legit? Is this local church what it says it is? And that's really part of why this church exists, to help people in our community meet Jesus. But not just to initially meet him, to help them learn how to walk each and every day and depend, tap into Jesus as the true vine. So, what happened to Elijah in the end? What's the end of the story? Did God kind of provide some food and water a couple times, give him a little sleep, and then just take off? What did God do for Elijah? We're going to read what's, what happens. We're going to pick it up in the second half of verse 8. Strengthened by that food, he traveled for 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Horeb, the mountain of God. There he went into a cave and spent the night. The Lord appears to Elijah, and the word of the Lord came to him. What are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, put your prophets to death with the sword. I'm the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. The Lord said, Go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountain apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire, and after the fire came a gentle whisper. When Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face and went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. Then a voice said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, put your prophets to death with the sword. I'm the only one left, and they're trying to kill me too. And the Lord said to him, Go back the way you came and go to the desert of Damascus. When you get there, anoint Hazael, king over Aram. Also anoint Jehu, son of Nimshi, king over Israel. And anoint Elisha, son of Shaphat from Abel-Meholah, to succeed you as prophet. Jehu will put to death any who escaped the sword of Hazael. And Elisha put to death any who escaped the sword of Jehu. Yet I reserve 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed down to Baal and whose mouths have not kissed him. 
It's a really fascinating, famous scene at the mouth of that cave. You know, God could have met Elijah in any of those three incredibly powerful, awesome displays of his strength. He could have met him in that wind that was almost tearing the mountain apart. He could have met him in the earthquake or the fire. And although that is absolutely true, that God is all-powerful, he is in charge of the natural world and the elements, it's not what Elijah needed in that moment. Elijah needed to hear God in that still, small voice. The text tells us, as soon as he heard that voice, he goes out to the entrance of the cave. Before he had kind of pulled back from those awesome displays of power, but now he draws near. He wants to hear the still, small voice of God. And again, maybe if we're totally honest and we look deep in our hearts, maybe that's truly how we felt about God. That He is some big, powerful being far away, and you believe is there, but you haven't really wanted to get close. But I want to tell you this morning, that is not the heart of God. The heart of God is to restore humanity back into right relationship with himself. Now, God loves us so much that he gave us a free will. He never, ever forces anyone to follow him. But God the Father did so much more than just kind of have these feelings of love and longing for the human race. He did something about it. He launched the biggest rescue mission in history. John three sixteen and 17, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. In Jesus Christ, God came near. In Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity took on humanity. And that takes something away from us as human beings. It takes away the excuse that we can't just shake our fist at God in heaven and say, you don't know what it's like down here. You don't know my life. You don't know the challenges. You don't know what I have to deal with. Because Jesus came and lived 33 and a half years on this earth, and he experienced everything that we go through. So the first thing that God asks Elijah is a question. He says, what are you doing here, Elijah? And I believe it's kind of two meanings. What are you doing here in this physical place, in a cave, running away from Jezebel? Number two, what are you doing in this emotional place? You're stuck, Elijah. You're On the one hand, you kind of want to trust me, and on the other hand, you're completely afraid for your life from wicked Queen Jezebel. What are you doing stuck in this emotional middle place? And Elijah gives his little self-justifying speech twice, I love the ending. It says, and now they're trying to kill me too. You can almost see him going, huh, what do you think of that, God? But in his tenderness and mercy and grace, God addresses Elijah exactly how he needed to. First of all, he does not let Elijah remain stuck. He gives him direction and a mission. He says, go back the way you came. Go into the desert of Damascus. And that is so important. We as human beings, we can live without stuff for a while. We can go even without food and water for a little while, but we cannot 
live without purpose and a mission and a plan in life. We think doing nothing and going nowhere will be absolutely the most restorative thing for us, but we're wrong. Have you ever wondered about the difference between the word vacation and the word holiday? We kind of tend to, to use those interchangeably. We'd say, I'm going on vacation, I'm going on holiday. We, we kind of mean the same thing. But they actually have really different roots. The root of the word vacation is the word vacate, to leave, to take off, to empty. And essentially, that's kind of the idea. And sometimes when I hear people talk about their vacation, that's exactly what they mean. They mean, I'm going to lie in a hammock by the beach, I'm going to shut my brain off, I'm just going to empty myself, I'm going to drink Corona till I pass out. That's pretty much what they mean. The root of the word holiday is slightly different. It actually comes from the words holy days. And that's referring to the holy days of the church calendar. Christmas, Lent, Easter, Pentecost, etc. Holy days are about rest and relaxation. Absolutely. You can sit in the hammock. Maybe have one corona. That would be good. But they're not about emptying your mind and spirit. They're actually about filling them. And it's interesting. I taught this to our kids a couple years ago. Now Malia will never let me forget it. She's like, we're not going on vacation. We're going on holiday. And, and it's kind of cute. But we've tried to change our language and a little bit of what we do on holidays because we've tried to teach our kids, yeah, we need a break. We're, we're not at church. We're not at school. We're not at dance doing all those things. We need a break. But we're not taking a break from our relationship with God. Because we don't believe that a relationship with God, knowing Jesus, following Him, that's not draining, that's not life-taking, that's life-giving. All right, second thing God tells Elijah. He addresses the political crisis in the nation. He says, enough with Ahab and Jezebel. I'm going to get them out of the way. I want you to appoint two new kings, Hazael, king over Aram, and Nimshi, king over Israel. What Elijah most feared, God is now taking care of. Third, God appoints Elijah a successor to help share the load, the, the prophet Elisha. And eventually, Elisha would take over Elijah's job, but for a while, they get to work together to, to share the load of the spiritual leadership of the nation. And finally, God directly addresses Elijah's greatest fear, He's mentioned it like four times in this story. He says, I'm the only one left. He thinks he's the, the only person whose heart is still faithful to God. And God says, actually, Elijah, you way underestimated it. I reserve 7,000 people in Israel that have not worshipped Baal, that are still true to me. And when you look at the whole thing, you go, wow, God was so compassionate, so kind, so caring to Elijah. He could have been kind of harsh with them and did, gave him a dumb slap, but he didn't do that. One of the books that I'm reading for this series is actually called Replenish by veteran author Lance Witt. And I love this little quote, and I think we can all kind of resonate with his desire. He says, I want to get to the finish line still in love with Jesus, still in love with the church, still in love with being a pastor, with my head held high, 
with my dignity and honor still intact, I want to look back over my shoulder and say it was worth it. Maybe we all don't have the job of being a pastor, but we can still resonate with the idea that we want to get to the finish line with our head held high, our dignity and our honor still intact, our relationships with those we love the most still intact. The good news is, this morning, we can all get there. But in order to do so, we need to replenish along the way. Let's learn from Elijah's example. Let's not get so burnt out and exhausted that we find ourselves under a tree just hoping we die. Let's open up our hearts and our minds to God, the God who truly loves us, who created us, who wants the best for us. You know, we might just look around this summer and discover some hot-baked bread over coals, some pure, ice-cold, refreshing water. And I want to urge you this morning to take God up on his offer. It's the replenishment we all seek. Amen? Bill, come for